Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. If you would stand to your feet, Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This is the Word of God. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Father, I pray that today, I echo Billy's prayer, Lord, that if there be any here who's, uh, who simply they do not know you, and you do not know them, Lord. I pray that their eyes would be open, their ears would be open, they would hear the truth of your word today, and that they would respond to the message of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we discovered together why Mark wrote his intro this way. There's so much wrapped up in that first verse there. If you look at it, Uh, Just as a review, the word beginning, the beginning, this is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of Christ's redemptive work. That's why he said it was the beginning. It's the gospel. In other words, these are the glad tidings. This is the good news. This always spoke of a victory of a king or military leader. So then he uses the word Yeshua derived from Joshua, which means God is salvation. So he's building here, he's putting building blocks to tell you who this Messiah is. Then he uses the word Christ, and it means the word Christ, the anointed one, the one who's been long awaited, the one that the prophets in the Old Testament have prophesied about for thousands of years, okay? And then he uses, finishes it all off with the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. They are one. They are in perfect unity always. Remember, to the Jews and the Gentiles both, this gospel, this word gospel, and this whole gospel that Mark is presenting communicated that he was presenting the good news of a king who's coming, all right? And this king transcends every other king that's ever existed. He is the king of glory. He is not just the one king in a long line of kings. He's the sovereign king of all creation. He is the center point of all human history. He is the king who will restore all things at the end, at the consummation of all things. And I laid out this section of Mark uh, last week in what I see as a clear outline within the text. So you have the intro, which is verse 1. And as I said, so much wrapped up in there. And then in verses 2 and 3, we read of the promised Messiah. And then in verses 4 through 6, we read of the proclaiming prophet, John the Baptist. That was last week, if you missed that. Pretty interesting study. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see the preeminent king. We see John pointing to this new uh, minister, this new man, this new prophet, priest, and king who has come, the long-awaited Messiah. And if you look in verse 7, we'll begin there. Verse 7, he says, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. Now, 
That's a profound statement to so many of the people who at that time heard John say this. Many, many people we learned traveled to hear John the Baptist preach. His popularity was like at a fever pitch, and you have to understand they didn't have all the distractions that we have. They didn't have television and uh, and sports and all all these things going on in their lives. And when they their lives revolved a lot around, uh, it was an agrarian society. They were farmers. Their families worked together, and they had been taught from the time of their childhood up about this long-awaited Messiah who was to come and that there would be a forerunner. And all of a sudden, out in the desert, there's this prophet proclaiming the truth of the coming Messiah, and people are flocking to him. So his popularity is off the charts. They traveled from the city of Jerusalem as well as from all over the region of Judea, as you'll see in the in the previous uh, verses there. And p- people believed in this desert prophet. They believed in him. They believed he was the real deal. And to prove this to you, we're going to we're going to flip around a little bit today, but turn to Mark 11, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 28 through 32. Mark 11, 28 through 32. The context here is that, as usual, the uh, leaders there in Jerusalem and in Israel were trying to trap Jesus in asking him questions. They took him a while to get through their head. They're trying to trick God. Here's what, here's what uh, they ask him in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And then here's this question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd. For everyone was regarding John to have been a real prophet. So the common people believed in John the Baptist to the point that the Pharisees were afraid of the crowd and they were afraid that they would riot against them if they said anything against John the Baptist or even floated the idea that he might not be a real prophet. Now consider also the words of Jesus. He makes a powerful statement about John the Baptist. He said he was the greatest man that had ever been born up until then. Okay, in Matthew eleven eleven, if you uh, want to write that down, Matthew eleven eleven. I mean, Jesus just comes right out and says it. And when he starts it with uh, "Truly I say to you," or "Truly, truly," you should pay close attention because it means, "Hey, this is a big deal. What I'm about to say is a big deal." So he says, "Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater." Than John the Baptist. Here's a here's a pop quiz for everybody. How many human beings have been born of women? All of them. Absolutely. So good job, good job, Kent. So now considering, uh, you know, Jesus is saying that a hundred percent of humans, out of all of them, not a single one was greater than this man, John the Baptist. Do you understand? He was the greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth. 
up until that point in human existence. Everybody understand that? Nod your head. Okay, that's John the Baptist. So considering John's popularity among the people, considering what Jesus had said about him, let's read that verse again and consider the weight of, of who John the Baptist is. In, in verse 7, he says, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. In other words, again, in their eyes, John was a huge deal, and that's true, but there was something coming after him mightier than John. John was the forerunner, which means he was coming ahead of someone else, and it also meant that his days in the spotlight were numbered. His job as this forerunner prophet was to prepare the hearts of the people, to make the paths straight, and direct their attention to this new coming king. All right, turn to the book of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 25 through 30. John 3, 25 through 30. Therefore, there arose a debate between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. Now, remember I told you that the Jews constantly were baptizing themselves uh, ceremonially for purification. All right, so this little skirmish popped up between one of John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew about purification. And they came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness... Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So there's been this noticeable transfer of authority or popularity within the minds and hearts of the Jewish people, and now they were seeking out Jesus instead of John the Baptist, and that's kind of what these questions are about. In the minds of John the Baptist's disciples, they saw this transfer taking place as well. So when you're like, you're like the popular kids and all of a sudden this new crew comes in and, for, and everybody's all of a sudden their attention turns to them, that's kind of what's going on here, okay? They're kind of sensing this, this change taking place and everybody's paying attention to that guy, all right? And verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Again, speaking of God's sovereignty, John is recognizing here that Jesus is ministering now under his Father's authority, according to his Father's will, and he's clarifying this truth to his disciples first and foremost, that anything that he does is either decreed or allowed by his Father. He's doing God's will. Verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So, so think about what he's trying to get across here. John's saying, I'm not the groom. I'm more like the best man. And What's funny is I was thinking about this when I was putting my sermon together and the fact that Jesus said he was the best man, like actually was the best man that ever lived up until Jesus. But
But, but he's saying, I'm more like the best man. And any good best man will be overjoyed to see the groom come forward and realize his dreams of having a wife and, and the, the wonderful beauty of marriage. And uh, the best man is so proud to be the one pointing to the groom. It's not his day. He's making it all about the groom on his special day. The best man understands his role. John, recognizing this, he says in verse 30, look what he says. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist understood, and he accepted his place in God's grand design. And he was faithful to serve as Messiah's forerunner. I wonder if we are going to be faithful to serve in whatever capacity the Lord puts us in. You know, it's it's um, it's one thing to grow up with with dreams and wanting to do things, and you know, I want to be this, I want to be that, and and uh, and our society really pushes that. And I I believe that there's a point in life, folks. Just think through this. I'm not I'm not. This is not this is not something dictated in Scripture. I just want you to think through this as parents, as grandparents, as uh, you know, uh, husband, as wife. This whole idea in our society of chasing your dreams and realizing your dreams and all of this stuff. Um, dreams can actually burden someone when they think their life is supposed to be something that the Lord never intended for it to be. We're to live quiet lives and serve the Lord and serve one another in the context of our marriages and serve our children. And if that's all we get to do, then that is a treasure. That is what life is is all about. So maybe just pray through that whole idea of realizing your dreams or chasing your dreams and all of that and and realize that dreams can be a burden. And John realized that his purpose in God's grand design was the most important thing. I would like each and every one of us to realize that as well. That's why we pray, thy will be done. Lord, whatever you would have me do, that's what I want to do. Well, look at how purposefully... He purposefully directs the crowd's attention in our passage here in Mark in the next verse. After me, one who is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. John was but the forerunner, the herald, the one who is coming is mightier. Jesus was greater than John the Baptist in every way possible. Okay, you have to understand that. His ministry, his perfect life. John was not being self-deprecating here. He wasn't just being, you know, kind. Oh, come on, guys. Stop it. Stop it. You know, and, and you know, just trying to do that fake humble thing. He was speaking the truth here. And uh, he says, I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. And to shed light on the meaning of this statement, you have to understand that in their culture, in that day and time, these folks walked around everywhere. Uh, they walked everywhere, and they wore sandals, and their feet were dirty, very dirty. It was dusty and dirty, and, uh, you know, the uppity-ups, the, the hoity-toities, the, the other half, right, they had servants and slaves, and it was the job of the lowliest slaves to remove the sandals of their masters and then care for and clean their master's feet And maybe it was this type of humility that was what drove Mary when she uh, washed Jesus' feet with her tears. 
and wiped them with her hair and anointed his feet with that expensive perfume. I mean, you know, think about that gesture in that regard when you're talking about someone's feet. But John's humility here, he didn't even consider himself worthy of even bending down at the feet of Jesus to unlatch his sandal. And what humility that shows, what recognition of, of his state, his lowly earthly state in comparison to who Christ truly was and who he knew him to be, the creator of all things. And John then continues his comparison with Jesus in verse 8. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What was he saying? Here's his point. Continuing this comparison, all John had the ability to do was immerse them in water and dirty water at that. They did not have filters and clean plumbing. The, these, these cisterns or these what they called mikvahs were baptistries and they would collect rainwater, all right? And they would just fill up with rainwater. And certainly they had some process to probably clean them, but you were stepping into basically a pool of dirty water. And John's, or, or the river, anybody ever swam in a river? Ever swam in a lake? It's not pristine, purified water, right? And so John is saying, I baptize you in this dirty water and it just covers the outside and it's ceremonial, you know? It was for the purpose of illustrating uh, their willingness to repent. But even then, remember we learned last week that they could fake it. You can be baptized and fake it. You can have this emotional experience and, and ride that emotion right into the baptistry and then your life not really be changed. You really not follow Christ. So it can be faked. And the thing is, baptism can be just, it really is just an outward physical exercise illustrating something that they genuinely wanted or most genuinely wanted to be taking place on the inside, which was a spiritual transformation. That's what baptistry repre or baptism represents. But the H2O had no power to change the heart. It couldn't clean them on the inside. It could not make them acceptable to stand in the presence of Almighty God. And the purpose of Jesus when He came, He was to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And this is huge because this is not just ceremonial. This is the real thing. This is a spiritual reality that's taking place. And it speaks of the beginning to end completed work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. What this is not is a, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit like we often hear in various you know, denominations. So they, they would teach that it happens after conversion and that you have this evidence of speaking in tongues. That is not what this is talking about. And that particular doctrine, folks, you know, at some point, if, if that's something you've learned and and believe, then we can walk through that in the book of Acts, but I believe it's based on a faulty understanding of those prophetic events that unfolded in the book of Acts. And, and it's very clearly taught in Scripture. You can understand what was going on there. But John is speaking of much more than just an experience. It is a divine, eternal, spiritual reality that occurs when the true believer is indwelled by the living God. When you accept Christ, when you repent and believe and put your faith in Him, the Spirit of God indwells you and does something incredible. But the first work that the Holy Spirit does on our behalf is what we call regeneration. You guys can write that down, regeneration. 
And this is, again, the very first work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And this is where he opens our eyes to see the truth. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, walk you through, through a few scripture passages here. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You can just write this down. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there unless you're quick. Ephesians 2, 1. It tells us, quote, you were dead in your transgressions. Note the word dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. So in our natural state, we are unable to do anything pleasing for God or to God. If you look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Romans 3, 10 through 12, here's what it says. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Do you understand what it's saying there? There is none who seeks for God. You can't find God on your own. Very clearly, Scripture tells us there's none who seeks for God. So what gives? It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. No, not even one. I don't know how much more clear you can get than that right there. Clearly, no one seeks after God on their own. Well, why? Well, it has a lot to do with being dead. Have you ever met a dead guy? They don't do much, right? And that's, that's what scripture, that's the picture that's showing us. We do not even have the ability to see truth without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, this act of regeneration. According to John 3, 3, John 3, 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there has to be something that takes place in order for you to see the kingdom of God. Uh, before we can be born again, we won't seek him. We're blind. We are unable to see the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But a natural man, note that phrase, natural man, you in your naturally born state, but a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. In your natural state, you are a foolish human being. That's what Scripture is teaching here. These, uh, the depths of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. So unless you're regenerated and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see, you simply cannot see. You cannot examine something spiritually unless your eyes have been opened to examine things spiritually. It's pretty straightforward. God's Word makes this so clear. And I am showing you here that this means no man or woman can seek trust or know God, please God, unless the Spirit acts first on that man's behalf. And that first initial, initial action is the opening of our eyes to see the truth, to show us our, our natural spiritual state and that we are devastatingly separated from God, dead spiritually, and we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God unless something changes. It transcends our natural ability. And then supernaturally, we are born of the Spirit. Okay? Born again. This is regeneration. 
It is a sovereign act of Almighty God, the Holy Spirit. And just as I have said on a number of occasions, you had nothing to do with your natural birth, okay? You, you just showed up, right? Didn't even know when you were going to show up. Some of you were early, some of you were late. Some of you were right on time. But you had nothing to do with what happened that day. And in the same way, until the Holy Spirit acts on your behalf, you have nothing to do with your second birth. It's something that the Holy Spirit does. In John 3, verse 8, John 3, verse 8, Jesus illustrates it this way. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So you can feel the wind. You see the effects of the wind on the trees and the signs and the things around you. But can you catch the wind? Can you control the wind? Do you have any power? Neither do you have any control over the work or the acts of the Holy Spirit. It is perfect, in perfect harmony with the Father and the Son in this divine act of salvation. And regeneration, folks, is just the beginning. The Holy Spirit uh, also unites the believer with Christ and places him in the body of Christ, which is his church. So he, we become a member of his body immediately when we're truly and genuinely saved. He also unites the believer with Christ in his death because Christ lived a perfect life and died. Uh, really, that uh, unjust or unjust death he, he died on our behalf, received the wrath of his Father. You and I now can live a victorious life through the righteousness of Christ. Okay? So we are united with Christ in his death, living victoriously over sin. The Holy Spirit fills, and that word fills is more like the word controls, the believer who submits himself to God's word. And as a result, the believer lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of this is that the Spirit of God produces fruit in our lives. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote them because I know them. Uh, and these are things that we all want in our lives. The, the, the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are the things that should be manifest in our lives as we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit sovereignly gives each of us spiritual gifts or abilities in the Spirit of God for the purpose of serving our local church body. And this work is not temporary or conditional. Uh, and and I, Meaning, I'm sorry, that's one thing, that he gives us gifts, and we've covered that um, quite a bit lately. But this work of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, is not temporary or conditional. And great joy and peace should come from knowing that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer permanently. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. You can have security as a believer. While a child of God may sin and even grieve the Spirit for a period of time, the Holy Spirit will never leave the true believer. The Holy Spirit will always bring the true believer back into communion with Christ, back into a right relationship. And if the Holy Spirit is absent in a believer, 
That is the mark of someone who was never regenerated, someone who was never saved in the first place. Right? My dad always said it this way. I've said this before, but I love it. Uh, the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. The faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. Believe this, though, folks. Can I, can I just give you this security? The sovereign spirit of God seals the true believer, guaranteeing their eternal security. He keeps us. He causes us to persevere until the work that he began in us is completed in us. And I want to show you, write down these two passages. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.30, Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You've been sealed, okay, for the day of redemption. Once you're sealed by the Spirit, it's an act of God. It can't be unsealed by something that you do, all right? And then in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Philippians 1, 6, Paul writes to the church uh, at Philippi. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know how you could put it any more plainly than that. The Holy Spirit who regenerated you, opened your eyes, started this work in you. He will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ's redemption. Until that day in which you've been made complete in the eyes of Christ Jesus. So again, to clarify what John is saying, to be baptized in the Spirit is the all-encompassing beginning-to-end work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And, and here's the deal, the, the deal folks. Um, Humanistic morality can be a decoy, all right? People can act saved, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, humanistic kindness can pull the wool over people's eyes. Even biblical head knowledge can pass as a form of godliness temporarily. But what, is, what do we read in Scripture? That there are those who have a form of godliness but deny the actual power of the gospel. And so, you know, knowledge in the wrong way, puffs up and makes one arrogant. And we can't be someone who just has biblical knowledge and has no passion or genuine love for God and God's people. The genuine, regenerating, renewing, sanctifying, transforming, and complete baptism and work of the Holy Spirit cannot be faked. It is eternal. And this new preeminent king who was to come after John was not going through the motions performing an illustrative exercise like John basically was. This new king is mighty, he's powerful, and he baptizes in the spirit of the living God. It's an act of God. And when John the Baptist said this, the crowds would have immediately thought of other prophecies that they'd heard since the time that they were little kids, like in Joel 2.28, Joel 2.28 and 29. Joel 2.28 and 29 says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male slaves and the female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit. And we know that that realization of that prophecy came to pass partially on the day of Pentecost. The other part of it is still yet to come if you continue reading. And then... In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel chapter 36, 
verses 25 through 26, this is a prophecy that they would have thought of. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. If you guys didn't catch that, that's Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 26. This is the powerful ministry of this new king that set itself apart from every former king, every former prophet, every former priest, all of that. And he will baptize the blind and they will truly see. He will baptize the lost and they will be found. He will baptize the unclean in the spirit and they will be clean. And he is the solution for the problem of sin and evil and death and suffering. He will deliver his people from the consequences of their sin. It is his very name. In this statement, John the Baptist puts Mark's gospel in a nutshell. Basically, this is the good news for those who will repent and believe. I wonder this morning if your eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel. Because, you know, this is something that you cannot do in your own power. And again, it's not an emotional exercise that happens at church camp. Or, I mean, you know, it's a genuine work of the Holy Spirit that changes you when you're indwelled by God. And in this moment, I would ask that you look at yourself, look at your own life. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Are you seeing the Lord work in your life? Do you have that peace and that joy and that fulfillment that should come uh, in fellowship with Christ and in fellowship with the Spirit of God, walking in the power of the Spirit? And if you don't see those things, then today I would ask you to cry out to God and ask Him to act on your behalf. You can ask Him to act on your behalf. Ask Him to open your eyes to see the truth. That even now you can recognize your desperate, fallen condition. And that you are bound for an eternity facing the wrath of God without the presence of Christ, your Creator. And the Bible says simply, you must only repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe. Place your life in His sovereign hands and the Spirit of God will transform you. Will you come to Him? Will you come to Him? I want to show you one last passage here in John 6.37. Will you come to Him? John 6.37. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out if in presenting the gospel today and what it really means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit you you know that the Spirit of God's opened your eyes then my question this morning as I give you some time here at the end. Will you pray? 
Will you do what scripture says all of his sheep will do? Hear his voice. Will you come to him? Will you come to him? Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there be one person here that doesn't truly know you, that they would waste not another moment. Spirit of God, I pray that you would act on their behalf in power and clarity. Open their eyes so that they might see. Open their ears so that they might hear, Lord. That they would see the devastating condition of their fallen state, their sin, that they are dead and that they have no hope without you. And then, Lord, in that reality, show them the stark contrast of the light in the darkness, your beautiful gospel, your redemptive work, that you came here, God became a man, and he lived a perfect life, and he died the death that I deserve, even receiving the wrath of his own father that should have been on me. Father, may they see this truth today and cry out to you and beg you to act on their behalf. It's in the precious name of Jesus I pray this. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.